the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. <coughs> oh, sorry. Maybe I'm exaggerating just a little bit. Is it smoky outside or what? Yeah, I feel a little bit scratchy these these days. Anyway, good <laughs> good afternoon. You're listening to poor, um, poor Sam on the other side of the glass. He didn't know what to do. Should I turn the mic off? Should I? What should I do? Is she having a conniption fit? What do we do? Anyway, I was just demonstrating the poor uh, air quality here in the Portland metro area. We'll tell you more about that in just a moment. But I do want to let you know that coming up um, this hour, we'll talk with Steve Martin. He's the vice president of field development with Wycliffe Associates Bible Translation Partners. They are currently supporting Bible translators in Ukraine. Other church leaders there will let you know uh, what the needs are, and you may want to come alongside them in that effort. And then later in the five o'clock hour, I'm so looking forward to a conversation with Paul Willie, who is the music director of the Portland Singing Christmas Tree, celebrating the 60th anniversary of this um, iconic event. Greg Tamblin will also be with us. He is the executive director. Uh, this year is going to be back at Sunset Presbyterian Church, and we'll give you all the important details. If you've never been, this is the year to attend the Portland Singing Christmas Tree on its 60th anniversary. Anyway, all of that coming up in the second hour of today's program. Well, as my demonstration may have (laughs) alerted you to, the air quality in Portland and the surrounding areas has been among the worst in the world for the past few days. On Thursday morning, the World AQI ranking ranked Portland air quality second worst across the globe. Only Seattle, dealing with wildfire smoke, ranks higher. Well, Portland's dismal air quality is also a product of wildfire smoke from the uh, Nakia Creek fire burning in southwest Washington near Camas in Clark County. By the way, I've been praying for uh, Camas. Uh, I know that people were evacuated there and um, kind of a tough situation. I'm not sure what the status is at this point, but know that you're uh, you're being prayed for. Anyway, the fire, which exploded from about 150 acres to more than 1,500 acres on Sunday, has been its... Um, uh, it's seen rather its uh, growth slow and containment increase over the past couple of days. But the smoke persists, making life miserable for everyone in and around Portland. Well, the air quality moved rankings from fourth worst in the world <laughs> on Wednesday up to second worst on Thursday. Is there an acceptance speech for that? I'd like to thank everyone for anyway. So when uh, will the air quality improve? According to um, KGW's chief meteorologist, Matt Safino, relief is on the way. Looking forward to those words. He writes that we turn the page on that story Thursday afternoon and evening. Okay, it's afternoon, maybe evening. Uh, The smoke will clear from west to east during the day Thursday as cooler winds from the coast blow in and change change out our stagnant air. Well, the morning will still be smoky, but our air quality will be much improved by sunset. So I'm hoping that's the case, although it's still pretty hazy where I am. The Western Valley should be smoke-free by Friday morning. So let's hope at least for that. Even better news, Afino said a strong Pacific cold front arrives on Friday, which will bring it 
uh, with it uh, the first rain of October. As you know, we've had record-setting temperatures, so I'm actually really looking forward to a little bit of rain. I have to take the cushions in off the patio furniture, which is usually done by sometime in mid to late September. Here we are, well, I guess it's late October and it's just now time to bring the uh, patio cushions in. Anyway, that's uh, pretty good news. Rain, the first rain of October. Area wildfires will get a good soaking rain. The weekend will be cool and showery as we go from much uh, above uh, average temperatures to below average temperatures for the next uh, week or so with frequent periods of rain. So there's good news in the offing. Temperatures will cool this weekend. Uh, with highs in the 50s. Do you remember the 50s, how much cooler that was? Rather than the 70s and 80s, Portland has seen in recent days. So yay, yay for that. Well, a Center for Disease Control uh, Prevention's Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices voted 15 to 0 to add the Pfizer and Moderna mRNA COVID shots to the child and adolescent immunization schedules for children who attend public school. Now, this may be more controversial than they imagine. Well, this means that public schools will now be able to mandate the shots in order for children to attend public schools. The committee voted in favor of this despite receiving thousands of negative public comments. The immunization schedule doesn't dictate what vaccinations are required for schools entry, as only states can decide that. However, it's likely to prompt some of the uh, school districts and states to add COVID vaccine to their list. Currently, more than a dozen states, including Virginia, Massachusetts, Tennessee, New Jersey and Vermont, follow the CDC vaccination guidelines to set requirements for children to be educated. So keep your eyes and ears open to see what's going to happen in Oregon and Washington. I could probably guess what will happen, but the uh, midterm election will determine our next governor and that may determine what uh, what the outcome will be. Well, on um, how far we've come in just two years, writes Nate Jackson, November 2020, just too late for the presidential election, Pfizer announced it had prepared an effective mRNA vaccination for COVID. Moderna and Johnson & Johnson weren't far behind. Donald Trump's Operation Warp Speed cut bureaucratic red tape to enable this, proving Joe Biden's charge that Trump had done nothing to stop the virus to be, well, Far from accurate. Well, many Americans hail the news as the light at the end of the pandemic tunnel. Unfortunately, in many ways, that light, well, it turned out to be an oncoming train. (sighs) The last entry in this um, trip down crazy lane is the news that the CDC advisory panel unanimously voted to add the Rona uh, shot to the public health agency's vaccines for children's program, assuming the ensuing recommendation is made uh, to add to the childhood immunization schedule, which it has. It will head to the desk of CDC Director Walensky and the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services for approval, which they most likely will. Uh, if officially adopted by the CDC, the COVID vax will become part of the immunization schedule used by many states, including perhaps your own. That means the shot will be covered by insurance after the federal government no longer foots the bill beginning next year. It also means it might become required for children to attend public school in some states. State laws uh, establish vaccination requirements for school children, according to the CDC. These laws often apply not only to children attending public schools, but also to those attending private schools and daycare facilities. Again, that's a quote from the CDC. We suppose the end result of this will be more stark dividing of the states that even uh, give the CDC the time of day, regardless of what the CDC votes on, whether COVID-19 vaccines are added to routine child immunizations. Nothing changes in Florida. 
So says the Surgeon General there, Joseph Ladapo, uh, before the vote. Thanks to Governor Ron DeSantis, COVID mandates are not allowed in Florida, not pushed into schools. And I continue to recommend against them for healthy kids. We talked about his uh, recent uh, piece on that very subject. Anyway, we'll see what happens here in the states of Oregon and Washington with regard to what is required to attend public and or private schools. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll take a look at some of the day's headlines when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I want to let you know that our sister station, True Talk 800, is launching Discovering the Jewish Jesus, God's Seven Holy Days. You can visit truetalk800.com to request your free download of God's Seven Holy Days. It's a comprehensive guide to understanding the fall holy days and how Jesus fulfills them. Learn how the seven holy days of the Old Testament relate to Jesus and what they mean for you today. And discover the Jewish Jesus. It airs 1030 weekday mornings, and again at 9 p.m. on Tuesday on True Talk 800, Discovering the Jewish Jesus, God's Seven Holy Days. That's coming up. Well, in midterm messaging, President Biden is timing policies to help Democrats avoid a GOP landslide. An intentional hero, an Iranian climber, was greeted by cheering crowds in Tehran after competing without her mandatory hijab. There's lots of uh, interest in what's become of her at this point. Saying, I'm heartbroken, a physician assistant says she was fired for religious beliefs about gender, believing there were only two. Flaming Mad, a man allegedly torched a New York City restaurant over botched uh, a botched order. Really, is that where we've uh, where we've come? The answer, sadly, is yes. Predicting rough times ahead, Brazil's economy minister warns world of stagflation and saying he was complicit parents fume over Fauci's deflation uh, deflection rather of school closings saying facts are stubborn things the Pennsylvania GOP gubernatorial candidate condemns Democrats handling of crime and an NBC reports the White House has become more apprehensive about press coverage calling it a moral issue Newt Gingrich and Bobby Jindal they explain what conservatives must do when it comes to health care saying health care is a moral issue first economic second Conservatives must ground health care reforms in fairness, compassion and equality. We'll face death. A man has been indicted for sending a letter to Congress threatening President Biden and others prompting an emergency. And following vile vandalism, there's been no justice for pro-life organizations or churches attacked after the abortion opinion was leaked from the U.S. Supreme Court. CEOs are getting candid. Business titans are sounding the alarm over the U.S. economy. And it ain't good. And an upset alert, former President Obama is traveling to Nevada, which voted for President Biden by just over two percentage points in 2020. A Senator Catherine Cortez Masto, a Democrat from Nevada, is locked in a tight reelection race with Republican U.S. Senate candidate Adam Laxalt. Minding the gap, the administration of Arizona Governor Doug Ducey is pushing back against a demand by the Biden administration that it take down a number of shipping containers it's been using to plug a gap in the incomplete border wall, saying that border states cannot uh, rely on the federal government to ensure its security. While seeking dangerous uncertainties, the administration is funding studies on trans treatments, adverse effects as it pushes them on kids. Well, despite disproved Jim Crow claims, the liberal media ran with a voter suppression narrative before the current record turnout. No word on that reversal. In a heated debate, Dr. Phil asks awoke educators, what makes you think you know better than parents? 
I think a lot of people are asking that question. Well, citing economic realities, Stacey Abrams suggests having an abortion is a solution to inflation. Think about that for a moment. Abortion is a solution to inflation. Now, if I apply that same logic to caregiving for my mother, who's 91, concern about inflation, the high cost of things, if terminating a pregnancy, a developing human child in utero is the answer to inflation, then why shouldn't I just terminate the life of my mother? Uh, because there are costs involved. This is the logic that passes as contemporary clear-eyed thinking. God help us all. Predicting they will have to cheat, The View host Joy, uh, Joy Behar on Wednesday said the Republican Party can't win due to changing demographics and claimed they have to cheat in order to win while discussing a crackdown on voter fraud in Florida. Now, the interesting presumption here is that demographics will determine how individuals will vote. All black people will vote Democrat. All Hispanics will back, will vote Democrat. There is no diversity within a particular racial group. She has assumed that if you belong to a particular group, you are owned by one side of the political ledger. It's insulting. It's maddening. And um, I fear she's going to learn that it doesn't work quite that way. Well, saying government was all over the place, international celebrity chef Daniel Boulad unleashed on government officials when asked about the impact their lockdown orders, mandates and mismanagement had on the restaurant industry during the COVID crisis. It was irrational, cowardly and irrational. Well, I guess he meant it. Uh, Boulard, he said uh, he was born in French, today lives near his celebrated Manhattan landmark restaurant, Daniel upon which he built his global fame. And he ain't happy. In uh, Money Down the Drain, San Francisco is building a single public toilet for $1.7 million. And by the way, it won't be done for years. This has got to be some toilet. People may travel the world to just come and see this $1.7 million toilet that will most likely cost more than that over the next several years as cost overruns are common. Well, China is recruiting former British Air Force pilots for training. The military is headhunting ex-British Air Force pilots for their training skills and expertise, and the U.K. government is working to stop it. The U.K.'s Ministry of Defense said Tuesday some 30 former British military pilots are believed to have gone to work for China to train personnel in its People's Liberation Army. Recruitment is said to be ramping up, with former pilots being offered large paychecks to work for the Chinese. And President Biden looks to release at least 10 million more barrels of oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. We were told about a week and a half, two weeks ago, they were done with that. But the administration is planning to release another 10 million to 15 million barrels of oil from the nation's emergency stockpile in an effort to balance markets and prevent additional increases in gasoline prices, at least for a minute. The release of the Strategic Petroleum Reserves would be the latest portion of the 180 million barrel program that started earlier this year. The administration is also expected to provide details this week regarding its plans to restock the emergency oil stockpile. New England predicts rolling blackouts in winter due to the depleted supplies of gas. Residents in New England cities are facing rolling blackouts this winter if temperatures drop for a prolonged cold snap because of lower fuel supplies. The region relies on natural gas imports to build the gaps, um, rather bridge the gaps between uh, during the winter, but is now having to compete with European countries for shipments of liquefied gas. Russian halts, um, Russians halt of most pipeline gas to the continent has ramped up the price and demand for natural gas across the globe. Former Representative Tulsi Gabbard 
uh, campaigned for Republican nominee for Governor of Arizona, uh, Carrie Lake, in the state. Um, just days after she announced she was leaving the Democratic Party, Lake's campaign said Gabbard would introduce Lake at a GOP forum in Chandler. Gabbard tweeted out a statement early Tuesday saying she looked forward to supporting Lake, who she said isn't afraid to call out the elite cabal of permanent Washington and the military industrial complex and their propagandists in the mainstream media. President Biden looks to codify Roe should Democrats win the midterms. The president promised Tuesday that the first bill he sends to Capitol Hill next year will be one that codifies Roe versus Wade if Democrats control enough seats in Congress for Biden to sign abortion protections into law. In a speech designed to energize his party's voters just three weeks ahead of the November midterms, the president said the only sure way to stop these extremist laws that would allow the states to determine for themselves whether or not or how abortion would be implemented um, that are putting in jeopardy women's health and rights is for Congress to pass the law, the president said. He acknowledged that right now we're short a handful of votes to reinstate abortion protections at the federal level, urging voters to send more Democrats to Congress. Speaker Pelosi refuses to accept the fact that Americans care about inflation and crime in new polling. Appearing on MSNBC Tuesday afternoon, the House Speaker defended the president's leadership from critics within her own party and dismissed a poll showing that voters were more concerned about the economy than abortion. The host, Andrea Mitchell, confronted Pelosi with a video clip of Representative Alyssa Slotkin, a Democrat from Michigan, demanding new blood within the Democratic Party after being asked if she'd support President Biden's running again in 2024. However, the speaker shrugged off calls for new leadership and lavished praise on the president. Igor Denchenko has been found not guilty on all counts of lying to federal agencies. Denchenko, a consultant whose information comprised the bulk of the 2016 Steele dossier, was acquitted Tuesday of lying to the FBI, leaving special counsel John Durham with losses in both cases he took to trial as his year-long inquiry into the FBI investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 election winds down. Several of Mr. Durham's own FBI witnesses appeared to undercut his allegations and said they believed Mr. Denchenko had been truthful. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Need to take a break, but we'll be back. And a reminder, coming up uh, in just a couple of segments, Steve Martin, Vice President of Field Development with Wycliffe Associates, will talk about aid they're providing in Ukraine. And we'll talk with Paul Willie and Greg Tamlin with the Portland Singing Christmas Tree. It's the 60th anniversary celebration. I hope you'll be a part of it. More coming up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up next segment, we'll talk with Steve Martin, Vice President of Field Development with Wycliffe Associates Bible Translators. They're helping uh, to provide relief to those serving in Ukraine. We'll hear more from him on that in our next couple of segments. And we'll also talk with Paul Willie and Greg Tamlin with the Portland Singing Christmas Tree, celebrating its 60th anniversary this year at Sunset Presbyterian Church. All the important details and a look behind the curtain just a little bit. That's coming up later in the 5 o'clock hour. So looking forward to that. Well, California announces an end to the state of emergency from COVID in alignment with the president. That February 2023... Uh, California Governor Gavin Newsom on Monday said the state will end its COVID state of emergency in February of 23, nearly three years after it was first declared. The months long timeline will better prepare the state health care system for any surge in COVID cases that may result after the holidays and will give local governments time to make necessary changes. Newsom's office announced. Well, BlackRock is seeing further divestment with Missouri's withholding some five hundred million dollars. 
The Missouri withdrawal of $500 million of pension assets from BlackRock, Inc., criticizing the firm for prioritizing ESG concerns over shareholder returns. We should not allow asset managers such as BlackRock, who have demonstrated that they will prioritize advancing a woke political agenda above the financial interests of their customers, to continue speaking on behalf of the state of Missouri. That's a quote from the state treasurer. Scott Fitzpatrick on Tuesday in a statement. Well, earlier this month, Louisiana's treasurer said that he his state would pull $794 million from the BlackRock funds, part of a growing backlash over the firm's stance on sustainable investing. Eric Swalwell released an abortion ad as a scare tactic. Well, the representative tweeted out a particularly fear-mongering ad from his campaign account in which a mother is pulled away from her dinner table and arrested in front of her husband and two children for having an abortion. MAGA Republicans want women arrested for having an abortion. This is what it looks like, the tweet claims. Well, Eric Swalwell's pro-abortion ad presents a lurid leftist fantasy that's really what's happening to pro-lifers. You remember the father who was pulled away from at gunpoint by multiple FBI agents uh, with his children looking on? That's actually happening. It wasn't fictitious. 100% false, says Life News. No abortion ban in the history of America has ever arrested women for having an abortion. Well, Jeff Bezos tells the U.S. to prepare for recession. Bezos said the economy is flashing warning signs, joining other corporate leaders who have cautioned that the U.S. is headed for a recession. I thought we were already in one, but okay. Well, his comments come as tech firms have undergone waves of layoffs and as economic growth and hiring have slowed. A recent survey of economists by the Wall Street Journal also found that they expect the U.S. to enter a recession in the coming 12 months as the Federal Reserve raises interest rates and attempts to cool stubbornly high inflation. On releasing oil barrels from the Strategic Reserve, President Biden says... It is not politically motivated. The timing is just coincidental. The president said oil companies need to use their record profits to ramp up production rather than to enrich shareholders. Gas prices are averaging $3.85 a gallon in the U.S. Oh, I wish it was only $3.85 here. Uh, Dropping off the record high of more than $5 a gallon set in June. With less than three weeks until the midterm elections, Americans in polls increasingly put the economy and the price of gas at the top of their concerns. In order to reduce gas prices just before midterms, the president opted to release an additional 15 million barrels from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Lucas Tomlinson points out that um, the Strategic Petroleum Reserve exists for national security, not failed energy policies. And Charlie Bellello says the U.S. Strategic Petroleum Reserve moved down for the 58th consecutive week to its lowest level since 1984. The 32% decline in reserves this year is the largest on record by a wide margin. Pray we don't have an emergency. Well, the District of Columbia passed a bill allowing non-citizens to vote in local elections. The D.C. Council, the legislative body representing Washington, D.C., sent a set of bills to Mayor Muriel Bowser's desk on Tuesday, one of which will allow illegal immigrants to vote in local elections. The bill allowing such voting passed on a near unanimous 12 to 1 vote, allowing its first reading earlier this week after languishing in the city council for a decade. The U.S. and Mexico plan to propose an international security assistance mission in Haiti amid civil unrest. The United States and Mexico introduced the the resolution at the United Nations to deploy a non-UN international security assistance mission to Haiti to restore order on the island nation, which has been terrorized by roving gangs in the wake of former President 
uh, the president's assassination last year. The Haitian prime minister requested a specialized armed force earlier this month to assist Haiti's national police in confronting the gangs. Linda Thomas-Greenfield, the U.S. ambassador to the U.N., said at a Security Council meeting on Monday that the new proposal is in direct response to Henry's request. Well, the baby formula shortage is lingering eight months after it began. Parents nationwide are still struggling to find baby formula months after panic first ensued. And one mother is sharing her message for the Biden administration over the crisis. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, around 33 percent of American families were still struggling to find baby formula in September. Lawmakers have called on the Food and Drug Administration to provide answers as to why the agency has such a delayed response to adapting uh, to the new shortages while prices continue to soar. The Democrat candidates plan for inflation, ignore it and press abortion. So much for the Inflation Reduction Act. The Daily Wire reports that Georgia's gubernatorial candidate Stacey Abrams told MSNBC on Wednesday that women across the Peach State need access to abortion to keep up with the surging costs of Biden's America. The election denier wasted no time defending the unholy sacrament of leftist politics. Children, not Democratic policies, are causing economic angst, she said. Meanwhile, Tom Elliott says Stacey Abrams says abortion can help address inflation issues. Having children is why you're worried about the price of gas. A CDC panel will hold a final vote on adding COVID vaccine to the recommended childhood vaccination schedule. And a Democratic Senate candidate's past comments have come back to haunt her just before the midterms. The North Carolina Senate candidate previously said there is something deeply troubling about efforts from Republicans to limit the ability of trans youth to have gender affirming surgeries. Beasley's remarks came during a November 21 Democratic Senate candidate forum put on by the LGBTQ plus Democrats of North Carolina. Well, the comments are in lockstep with many comments made by top officials in the Biden administration, including those from the transgender assistant secretary for health, Rachel Devine, who said during a July 2022 interview with MSNBC that Americans must affirm and support and empower these youth. Well, North Carolina Democrat Senate candidate Sherry Beasley says it's deeply troubling and the very dangerous that uh, irreversible sex reassignment surgery and puberty blockers for kids are not paid for by taxpayers. Apparently, it's not sitting well in North Carolina. Well, Putin declares martial law in Ukraine captured regions. Vladimir Putin declared martial law in four occupied regions and given security forces sweeping powers and a sign the Russian president is struggling to regain the military initiative nearly eight months into the invasion of Ukraine, thought to have only required a few months. Well, Netflix is planning to charge extra for password sharing. They warned streaming freeloaders their days are numbered as the media giant plans to implement its long promised crackdown on account sharing. President Biden keeps robbing the Strategic Petroleum Reserve and yet another blatantly political move. And the IRS has expanded deductions for inflation. The Internal Revenue Service has increased the standard deduction parameters for the 2023 tax code in reaction to the persistently sky-high inflation rate. The standard deduction will increase by 7%, representing the largest drop in inflation adjustment since the tax code began indexing for inflation back in 1985. Other inflation-adjusted changes to income brackets were announced as well, which include raising the estate tax exclusion from $12.6 million to $12.92 million per person and increasing the annual 
uh, lifetime gift exclusion from 16000 to 17000 There are some tax credits, however, that will not be adjusted for inflation, including the $2,000 child tax credit and the limit on local tax deductions, which stays at $10,000. This is yet more evidence of how much Americans' overall economic health has diminished under the current leadership. Election interference is being alleged in El Paso. The administration has pressed the mayor of El Paso, Texas, not to declare a state of emergency regarding the migrant crisis plaguing residents of the city. Members of El Paso City Council have called on Democrat Mayor Oscar Liso to declare an emergency as homeless shelters in the city have been overrun with thousands of uh, illegal aliens. Thus far, Lesser has resisted doing so, and he recently revealed the reason why. A council member, Claudia Rodriguez, explained, he told me the White House asked him not to. Well, Texas Republican Representative Tony Gonzalez responded, it is a sleight of hand what the administration is doing, pressuring the local governments to not issue a declaration of emergency to say as if uh, everything is going okay. He observed the same thing in other parts of the district. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, a conversation with Steve Martin with Wycliffe Associates on their aid to struggling Bible translators in Ukraine. We'll also talk with Paul Willie and Greg Tamblin in the second hour of today's program. They're with the Portland Singing Christmas Tree, celebrating the 60th anniversary this year at Sunset Presbyterian. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Georgine Rice Show. Wycliffe Associates is a name that might be familiar to many of you, but you may not know the full extent of the work they do in supporting Bible translators. Well, Wycliffe Associates is an international organization. They empower uh, Bible translators who translate the Bible into the mother tongues of uh, people groups around the globe. And they partner with local churches in the advancement of Bible translation and supplying essential aid to Ukrainian national Bible translators and others. Now, we're going to talk a bit about their work in general, but the work they're doing now in Ukraine is uh, the subject of our uh, conversation and their efforts to uh, support those who are engaged in Bible translation in this war-torn area. Joining us to do just that is Steve Martin. He is Vice President of Field Development with Wheelcliffe Associates, Bible Translators, and we're delighted to have you with us and to uh, familiarize our listeners with what uh, Wycliffe does as well as what you're doing now in Ukraine. Welcome. Well, thank you, Georgine. It's my pleasure to be with you today. Well, let's begin by talking about Bible translation. I had a conversation with someone at an event just a few days ago, and we were uh, fascinated at the thought that the scriptures are being translated at a rate that was unthinkable just a short time ago. Talk a little bit about the translation work and how that uh, that uh, work of the Great Commission is is moving forward. Well, Georgine, we at Wycliffe Associates, we see Bible translation as a critical aspect of the Great Commission that we read there in Matthew 28. And God has just opened doors for His Word to accelerate in uh, new passages that we didn't dream about decades ago. And so in the mid-teens, 2015, 2016, in that area, we started seeing where there was maybe a better route that we could start giving our attention to, and that was allowing the people who knew the language to actually be the translators as well. And we would come in alongside them, allowing the local church, what we call church-owned Bible translation, to be the ones who owned, managed, and made all the decisions in regard to the translation project itself. What that ended up resulting in was a 
acceleration that we didn't imagine. But now what maybe would have taken anywhere from 20 to 25 years uh, can be done in two or three years or less. <laughs> it's absolutely Amazing to consider the the rate of increase that we've experienced in a short period of time. What role does technology play in making that possible? It's a critical role. Uh, We obviously had to put a lot of effort into our technology, and it continues to grow. We provide the tools to train the technology to our partners around the globe that are doing Bible translation, and this is technology that is all built into laptops. And so they have basically incredible resources that most pastors, ministers would envy uh, on their um, digital uh, machines and are able to use that for the translation process, both in written and oral. How, how do we stand generally in terms of seeing the scriptures translated into the mother uh, language of people groups around the globe? How close are we to fulfilling the Great Commission, at least in terms of having the Bible available in the, the languages of the people uh, who otherwise would not uh, have op- opportunity to understand the scriptures? Uh, that's a great question. And we generally sit around round tables here at Wickham Associates asking ourselves that same thing. And the reason I say it that way is every time we think we know, okay, this is how many languages are in the world, we uncover languages that we didn't know existed. Or countries will raise their number of, oh, we don't have 700 languages. We have 2,000 languages in our country. So that number kind of eludes us a bit, but what we do know is that we are making progress with penetrating the darkest, most difficult areas of the world to make sure that all people have God's Word. And the gateway languages, what we call gateway languages, or the languages of commerce, uh, have God's Word. And so the teams that are put together have the resources that they understand to be able to be doing the translation into their heart language. Now, how does this work? It it used to be, at least uh, as I understood it, that someone who was translating the scriptures would move to an area where a particular language was used. They would labor over the process of learning the language and then uh, learning to write the language in order to translate the scriptures. Is that essentially the same way that it's done today, where people are actually living in the area where the scriptures are being translated? Or does technology and travel and all of that make it um, simpler and people can do it from locations anywhere in the world? Yes, another great question. So the way I would answer that is some of that still happens in the way that you described it. However, in almost all methodologies, the opportunity to not have to be in the community on a full-time basis exists. And so for the way that uh, works for Wycliffe Associates, uh, we have in our mass methodology mobilized assistance supporting translation Uh, which comes under our church-owned Bible translation uh, umbrella, Uh, we go in and we'll do training workshops with the local people. And, of course, the pastors, the synods, the bishops, you know, they're the ones who pick who their translators are going to be. And often they're more highly educated than many of us. (laughs) And so they'll bring them together and they'll form their translation team. And then we will walk them through uh, the 
uh, process of doing translation, how to do the drafting, how to do the checking, uh, how to do that with a community check. And they take it from there to expand it uh, to other uh, regions or other language groups around them. And so that is what accelerates the translation because they already know the language, mm-hmm. they know the culture, they know what the words mean and how to apply them. Whereas if we went in, sometimes our best guess is not close. I can't even imagine the challenge of trying to learn and uh, not just learn, but understand a language and then translate God's word into that language. Is there much pushback? Do you find that um, translators are generally welcome or are there instances in which uh, the work they do is opposed either by locals or by government officials? Well, I've taken that question as relating to the national translators and depending on the country, is what type of reception they receive. We have obviously easy countries that we could go into. They have no uh, issues with Bible translation. They see that as a great literacy uh, advancement for their country and their people. They encourage it and applaud it and give us all the go-aheads. There are other countries which we call creative access or difficult countries to get into. And those people are more required to be able to do their translation without any uh, being noticed Mm -hmm. or others being aware of what they're doing. Sometimes what we have to do there is actually bring them out of their countries into a neutral country, and we have what we call safe havens. And they're able to do the workshop at this neutral place, put their information up in a cloud, get back to their country, and then they get back into their homes. They can draw it back down and continue working. But we can't get into the country. Or if we did go into the country, we would jeopardize them by their association with us. So this is very careful uh, work that you are doing. One of the things that Wycliffe Associates is focusing on right now is supporting Bible translators and their families as well as other Christians in Ukraine. Now, it might surprise some of our listeners to know that there are Bible translators in Ukraine. It's sort of the Bible belt of that region. Explain what Bible translators in the Ukraine region are doing, and then we can talk a bit about the challenge they currently face. Yeah, so they're involved in um, language groups uh, that don't have Scripture. Uh, Some of those may have a New Testament. They don't have an Old Testament Some may have portions of the scripture, and then there's the people groups that don't have any scripture at all. And what we currently know is that number is probably somewhere in the vicinity of 45 to 50 or so in Ukraine that don't have any scripture. And our teams are most heavily involved with the Roma languages, kind of the gypsy type languages that are there. And we have opportunities uh, right now with our regional director who lives in Kiev uh, to reach out to eight other uh, language groups. And I think he plans on doing that in November. 
We're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation and talk about what's happening in Ukraine and how the war with Russia is uh, impacting Bible translation, uh, translators, their families and the uh, Christian community as well. Once again, we're talking with Steve Martin. He's vice president of field development with Wycliffe Associates. We're talking about uh, Bible translators and those they partner with and in particular in Ukraine. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm going to continue a conversation with Steve Martin. He is Vice President of Field Development with Wycliffe Associates Bible Translation. They're partners with uh, churches all around the world. We're going to talk about what's happening in Ukraine. Oftentimes when we think about Bible translation, we think about remote places. We don't necessarily consider that there's work being done in Ukraine and how the war is impacting those who are involved in Bible translation in that area. Can you talk with us about the emergency 911 fund and uh, how Bible translators in Ukraine are um, suffering as a consequence of the conflict that's going on there? Uh, certainly can, Georgine. When this all happened back in February, actually February 24th, uh, many of us were gathered together in another country outside of Ukraine, and our team was with us. Our Ukraine team was with us. So it's kind of interesting as things started happening and cell phones started buzzing, uh, ringing, uh, alarms started going off, and all of our attention went to what had just happened in their country. We immediately began praying, stopped our meeting, began praying, just seeking God's face uh, for his intervention at that time. And then, of course, by the end of the evening, the devastation, the destruction, the death report, all that stuff started coming in uh, to us and our Ukraine team. So, it didn't require any additional prayer for us to know what to do. Mm. It's one of those things where you know what God wants you to do um, just in your spirit. So we immediately began arranging how do we help our people. What turned out for us was we had families that were separated. They were maybe some of the family was in a different country. Some of the families in a different part of the country. And uh, we had one, uh, that of parents and their daughter were separated. The daughter was at the home. The parents were actually with us. And eventually, uh, they were, we were trying to get the daughter out, and every road was closed. Every bridge was bombed. It was just she always ended up getting turned back. Eventually, uh, they were able to be reunited in another country, and we were providing funding uh, for them to be able to, to live because they had lost everything uh, in the process of the daughter. Uh, escaping right after she got away, uh, a bomb hit their home and destroyed it. So we've been able to go in, provide those needs, uh, just basic humanitarian needs uh, for our our staff and for translation team members. And we don't really limit that to only those who work with us and are doing translation, but we let them look at the landscape around them because they have some eyes that they can see where uh, these people really need help. And what we found at Wycliffe Associates is that our humanitarian aid has opened many people's hearts to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, and many have come to know him simply because we provided a package of food 
or we met a need in their family's life, or there was a medical issue here as a result of something awful that had happened. So that's one of the ways or some of the ways that we have been able to assist at Ukraine. This particular family with the daughter where they were separated, they've actually gone back in to mm-hmm. their home city of Kiev and are actively back at work in Bible translation. That's just just amazing. The emergency nine one one fund, is that something that you have had for a, a long period of time and had to activate in order to supply the practical um, needs that, of those who are translating in, in war-torn or other troubled areas? I don't know the origin of our emergency 9-11, but I do know it's been with us for more than two decades because it's always been here since I've been with Wickliffe Associates. So that's a couple of decades. And it is something that our donors are quick to respond to when they see a crisis. Many of our donors will know that they're going to be sending out an emergency grant, and so maybe they send their money in early. But generally, once we send out something to say, you know, we, we need some funds to be able to help, this is something that gets an immediate reply from our donors, and they're very generous. And we just turn that right back around and get it to the people who actually need it. I know for many people who have been observing since February, the events in Ukraine have been very concerned about what they can do and practical ways to help. And this certainly is a means to do that. Is there a way for listeners here today to participate in this effort through the emergency 9-11 fund? Yeah, the simplest way would just be to go to our website, www.wickliffeassociates.org. And there'll be projects on one of those um, horizontal lines and just flip through that a couple of times and you'll see the opportunity to get to the 9-11 emergency fund. Again, that's uh, www.wickliffassociates.org. And I'll put a link on the uh, Facebook page as well as the kpdq.com uh, webpage as well. So you can click on that and uh, give if uh, your heart is so moved. Now, Wycliffe Associates is not a political organization. The Body of Christ is not a political movement. Um, it, are there translation um, efforts uh, similar to what's happening in Ukraine and elsewhere around the world in Russia? We do have uh, projects ongoing in Russia, and we also have one that just was completed uh, recently, uh, as in, I think, a couple months ago. And we have a team there as well. Uh, Russia is um, a more challenging country for us to be in, but we have people on the ground in Russia. Yes. Well, we certainly can be in prayer for all those who are in the uh, the challenging work of Bible translation, um, bringing the um, the Great Commission into brighter relief as we consider that we are moving closer to the day in which uh, the Bible will be available in, in every mother tongue uh, around the globe. Um, how can we pray for uh, Bible translators in Ukraine and certainly elsewhere around the world who are uh, helping to fulfill that Great Commission by their careful and meticulous work of translating God's Word into languages uh, that have, uh, up to this point, not have access to the Bible? Well, Georgine, uh, I appreciate you asking that question, because prayer, as we've many times heard within the Church, it is the work, and those who pray are the ones who pave the way for anything that Wycliffe Associates accomplishes. Our translation uh, teams are still facing the fact that, you know, their homes are destroyed. They're, they're living in apartments or maybe they're uh, having to uh, 
live with other people because their home is is gone. They're facing the challenges of you know just the mental jarring that goes on daily, the state of crisis that they're in. Uh, there still is a shortage of food and water. There's the inability to move around without caution and fear. Um, blockades that still continue to happen and the challenges that go with that. These things all work against them in the efforts to move forward with Bible translation. Um, but they don't let those things stop them. So while these things have caused them to stumble, they have not fallen. And these are areas that we can continue to pray that God would just give them strength. So that's what they ask for. Their desire is that they not get distracted from Bible translation. And our desire is that we can give them everything they need so that they can continue with that passion in their heart to have God's Word in their heart language and for all the people that speak that along with them. Absolutely. Well, there are a couple of ways that we've just <laughs> discussed that we can come alongside and support the work. One would certainly be to fervently pray for, uh, pray for those who are engaged in the work and especially those who are in challenging circumstances. We can also consider giving to the the uh, emergency 9-11 fund. You can go to WycliffeAssociates.org. And again, we'll put that uh, address on the uh, web page so that you can click on that and give generously as those particularly in Ukraine are currently struggling under the uh, the weight of the violence that's going on in in that country as they continue in their efforts to translate God's word. Well, I am so grateful for the work that you do and the uh, the role that you are playing in helping to reach the goal that we all just dream of, and that is to have uh, the Bible translated and for men and women in every country, every tribe, every uh, native tongue can read God's word and uh, be introduced to his son. So thank you for your faithful efforts and thank you for taking time to talk with us here today. Well, thank you, Georgine, for inviting us. It's been a pleasure to be your guest and may your voice continue to sound forth for the kingdom of God. Thank you so much. Again, Steve Martin is Vice President of Field Development with Wycliffe Associates, Bible Translation Partners. And that uh, web address, if you'd like to help in their efforts to support Bible translators, particularly in Ukraine, as well as uh, members of the the church there, it's WycliffeAssociates.org. And that's W-Y-C-L-I-F-F-E Associates.org. That will be on the website if you uh, want to check it out there. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break. When we return, we're going to talk with Paul Willie. He is the music director of the Portland Singing Christmas Tree, along with Greg Tamlin, the executive director. This year marks the 60th anniversary celebration. Once again, the Singing Christmas Tree will be at Sunset Presbyterian Church. We'll give you all the important details and we'll reflect on 60 years of the Portland Singing Christmas Tree, culminating in, well, this year. So I hope you'll plan to uh, to be a part. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. And I have to tell you, I've been looking forward to this segment, well, since I found out it was scheduled, because it's about the Portland Singing Christmas Tree. Now, that's cool in and of itself, but the Portland Singing Christmas Tree is celebrating its 60th anniversary. 
And um, contrary to popular opinion, I wasn't there 60 years ago, but (laughs) I'm just thrilled to be a part of this wonderful group of musicians that has really buoyed up the Christmas celebration, introduced the season into the city of Portland back this year at Sunset Presbyterian Church. And here to talk about it is Paul Willie. He is the music director of the Portland Singing Christmas Tree and Greg Tamlin, who is the executive director and so much more. That really needs to have, you know, dot, dot, dot after it because you're such a fixture in uh, in this uh, community. Anyway, so thrilled to have both of you here. Welcome. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, Georgine. 60 years of the Portland Singing Christmas Tree. Now, most people have no idea how it started. They might assume it just sprung on the scene at the Keller Auditorium, but really has very simple and humble beginnings. Paul, can you tell us a little bit, how did this whole thing start 60 years ago? Boy, humble is a good word for it, because we did start in a church. It was an idea and an experiment at the time, but there was a vision back then to pull together people who had a uh, an idea around bringing the Christmas story to life in a unique way. And part of this was bringing a, a choir together and let's create something visible that is in the shape of a singing of a, of a, of a tree itself and um, and bring forth choir music in a way that people really wanted to uh, to hear and, and respond to. If we look at that from 60 years ago and again humble at a church, um, volunteers only to what it has grown and become, uh, 300 people that, that come in and out of uh, the stage. We have uh, anywhere from 50 to 100 volunteers that make this show happen every single year. This year we'll have nine shows as well. But I think about over 90 years, and I think about the duration of that time. What's happened in 60 years? Mm. We've had 600,000 people that have come through our show. We've had uh, we've had 100 babies born amongst our choir family. We've had 20 marriages happen within our choir family as well. But we have been able to be a part of our greater community in bringing the story of Christmas to life every single year for 60 years. That is an honor, and I'm humbled by uh, by the opportunity to carry that forward. You know, it's amazing that people still want to see the Portland Singing Christmas Tree because it has remained relevant. It's remained current. The music is great. It changes every year. And yet there are some traditions that have continued throughout. It really requires a great deal of creativity to to capture a community's attention over that span of time. But the Portland Singing Christmas Tree has managed to do it. Now, Greg, you have been associated with the tree for how long? This will be my 30th year. Is it really? Yeah. And I'm 37, so it's... it's. <laughs> I remember it's, when they rolled you in in the that's stroller. Right, that's right. For that. That's right. Told people what to do then, and I'm still doing it. Yeah. Oh, you know, I, it, I just marvel because if people don't know your background in theater here in the, the Portland metro area and across the country, I should say uh, around the, the state, you have been a fixture in uh, entertainment and theater and all of that for a long, long time. When you first connected with the Portland Singing Christmas Tree, I was astonished. I mean, here we have this, uh, the caliber that you bring to this community event really is a kind of a staggering contribution. How did you ultimately connect with the Singing Christmas Tree? So uh, I worked at a place called Studio Concepts, building parade floats all around the country. And my boss there, the owner of the, um, the company, Gene Dent, was the technical director for the Singing Christmas Tree and worked there for years as a lighting designer, set designer, and everything else. And they were looking for somebody to write a Santa scene, basically to help the youth choir put together a Santa scene. And they wanted to have a little story to it. And so I wrote this story about Santa's big toy machine and the kids popped out of that. And so I wrote it and then I came down to a couple of rehearsals to sort of help stage it a little bit. And then I just kept looking around and this was at the Keller Auditorium and I was just amazed at two things. One, how kind of unorganized it was. And two, (laughs) about how much they were getting done, even by being unorganized and how committed everybody was. And uh, 
you know, it's not unlike any other real theatrical production. You know, you start out, you feel like you have forever, and then the closer you get to opening, there's more chaos, and then magically, somehow, everything seems to come together uh, for a great performance. And uh, the next year, um, the director at the time, Jim Boehner, said, could you come back and stage the show and help me put it in order? And I came up with an idea of writing a story that would kind of lock everything together and make all the songs make sense. And the only kind of odd thing about it was he didn't tell anybody that I was doing that. So I walked out thinking that everybody knew what was going on, started bossing people and moving people around and telling them what to do. And um, people would come up to me and say, who, who are you and why are you telling us what to do? And so that still happens 30 years ago, it's 30 years today, you know, but, but it's been a, a beautiful and incredible journey, both for me and my family. My daughters have been involved in the mm-hmm. tree my stepson's involved in the tree. My wife's involved with the tree. You know, it's been a really precious and amazing part of my life. Well, and we are all better for it. I still marvel. You have worked with professionals. You travel the country doing all kinds of work as a director and a producer and an actor. You do everything. And yet you work with this group of amateurs and somehow whip us into shape. I think most of us who have been in the tree, the the last rehearsal, we're thinking, how on earth is this going to all come together? And then the curtain comes up for the first performance, and there we are. You have managed <laughs> to to whip us into shape in such a way that the audience marvels when the f- curtain first uh, rises, and we begin with that song. And, you know, I think the most important thing is, is that I, I don't really, it doesn't matter to me how talented you are. It's about your commitment. And the tree has people from all walks of life and all walks of faith that come together to sing. Yep. And that's where it kind of started, really. It just starts with a song that the audience wants to hear. And then you give those people confidence that are work again in all different fat, you know, they're plumbers, they're retired, they're, you know, they own their own businesses. They're all this, but they come together for the opportunity to sing together and they want that bad. And so if you keep setting a bar higher and higher for them to reach, then that gives them something to strive for. And they take it seriously. The tree is, is, is somebody walked in one year thinking it was going to be a community event and walked out and they thought they just saw the Radio City Music Hall. So, I mean, it can be that. It can be that. I remember the first time I was asked by Jim Boehner to sing in the tree, and I thought it was just going to be a community event. And I sat in the uh, Keller Auditorium and watched the rehearsal. I was astonished at what I saw. It was so much more than I had anticipated. And I've learned since that the singing Christmas tree that consists of the adult choir and the children and dancers and singers and all, we really are a family. People love one another. They see this as a service to the community and a blessing to the community. And I think that's translated with how we sound when our voices are raised together. It's just a beautiful offering of joy and hope and peace uh, at the time of season when people are most likely to be receptive to that message. Yeah. And I think Paul can speak to, you know, this isn't, a lot of people who come and want to sign up, they think, oh, we'll get together for a couple of rehearsals and then hit the stage and we're good to go. Give me a costume and I'm ready to roll. And that's not the case. Not at all. No, we we start back in August uh, unveiling our show and our music and we put music in uh, our singer's hands with a rehearsal CD. And then we hit uh, the ground running on actual rehearsals uh, right after um, right after Labor Day. And it's three hours every Monday night. Um, we have a recording weekend where we're coming together to really fine-tune aspects of the the music and the show and make sure we have good background vocals for when we're on stage. But it is a commitment. Um, the other thing I, that I love hearing from our choir, though, is we come in with the intent to learn our music and master our music and make something beautiful uh, with our voices. 
But the other part that gets created is this amazing community of individuals mm-hmm. who truly care for and love for one another. But there's this family that we've ultimately um, fostered over the years that relationships are built. And yes, uh, people come together. Some some get married. Some you know th- some there are lifelong friends. But I see three and four generations at a time in one family a part of this tree, and they're continuing this tradition forward amongst the choir members, too. So I, I love both aspects of it. I love the musical side of it. I love the show that we pull together and the message, but I also love the community that gets built. And I think you can see and feel that um, as someone who comes in to see the show, uh, the love that folks have for one another, even up on that stage. Yeah, I would agree. Now, Paul Willie, you are the director of the Portland Singing Christmas Tree Choir. Last year, we were coming out of the pandemic. It was the first live performance since the pandemic. And the expectation was that you were going to co-direct the choir, as had been the plan. Right. Things changed. And now you are the director of the Singing Christmas Tree Choir. Can you give us a little bit of that background? Sure, sure, you bet. Um, Yeah, uh, a very close friend of mine who uh, was directing the show with me last year, um, for medical reasons, couldn't be a part of the show last year and then has since moved on from the organization. But what I have found was, I mean, first of all, there was such great support of everybody. Um, I feel like there, those were big shoes to fill to lead the entire show directing it. Um, but again, I think I had incredible support from so many people, uh, certainly from Greg and from the rest of the cast, et cetera. Um, but yes, this year, uh, directing the whole show and getting the choir ready. Um, and it is, it's a lot of work. But man, I got to tell you, out of anything I do in my life, this is one of the things that brings me such personal fulfillment to be able to take what you know, what, what I know from a musical side of things, work with such great people, and hopefully make something really magical together. Um, so yes, while it's a lot of work, and yes, it, it might be big shoes to fill, I love every aspect of it. I'm more excited about this year than ever before. I think the show's incredible. I think the people are more excited than ever before. Um, there is an energy and an excitement building this year that I haven't felt in, in my 10 years yet. Um, so I'm really, really thrilled. I think it's going to be something really special for everyone. Yeah, and the cool thing is... You're invited. You're invited to the 60th anniversary celebration of the Portland Singing Christmas Tree coming up this November. In fact, uh, what are we? November the 26th, I believe, is the first performance. The day after Thanksgiving, yep. We'll give you all those details in in a moment. Um, But uh, we'll continue our conversation. I need to take a break, so we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I have two celebrities in studio. Paul Willie is the music director of the Portland Singing Christmas Tree, and Greg Tamlin, executive director of the Portland Singing Christmas Tree, and so much more. We don't have time to go into all your credentials, or that's all we would talk about. But um, we're excited because this is the 60th anniversary celebration of the Singing Christmas Tree. Last year, we ended up at Sunset Presbyterian Church. Can you explain to listeners why there and... Um, why there again this year? Uh, several reasons. One, I think the one thing that the Portland Singing Christmas Tree has done over its 60 years is made this show affordable to people. And uh, costs are going up everywhere. Yeah. The cost, the Keller Auditorium was our home for so many years. And we hope someday it will be our home again. But we we are unfortunately not able, and we don't want to raise our ticket prices to be able to cover those costs down there. Union costs go up, um, Venue costs go up. Um, and also we sent out a survey to um, our audience members and found out that they weren't really ready last year to go back downtown. Um, there's so much information and misinformation about what's going on down there. Anything from if you drive down there, your car will catch on fire and, you know, while you're driving <laughs> through downtown Portland. And so there's Spontaneous lots of... Spontaneous combustion. Right, 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 right. And, and so 
So we decided actually almost six weeks, seven weeks out from our opening that we had, we, we couldn't, we couldn't make it to 60 if we didn't take care of this now. And so uh, we have a couple of our choir members and tech people that work on our show have connections with Sunset Church. And we went out there and met with their tech team and their leadership and all that. And they said, come on out. We'd love it. And I don't think they really knew what they were getting (laughs) into, but we went out there and we kind of whipped a show together really quickly. And we have a band and we have, we pulled out seats and we redid their lobby and we kind of worked our dressing rooms into their gymnasium and stuff like that. And we had six shows and we prayed and we crossed our fingers and next thing you know, those six shows were sold out and we added a seventh Mm -hmm. and people really embraced it out there. It's free parking. It's easy access off the freeway. And it's just, it took such a weight off of our shoulders, not to worry about the financial part of it. And so we were ready to go back to the Keller again this year. And, um, same thing kind of came up. There was still undecided financial costs down there that they were still working on. And we just couldn't feel like it didn't feel like it was a good place to go again. So it's amazing. The church kind of called us up earlier and said, would you want to come back? And we couldn't even get the word yes out of our mouth fast enough. (laughs) So um, it's, it's an auditorium in a, it's called a sanctuary, but they're auditorium seats and it, they have a stage and we have a costumes and we have a cast and we have a band and we have a show and that's where it belongs now. And, uh, yeah, and that's what people have come to expect. I know when I first learned that the uh, performance was going to be shifted to the church, I'm familiar with the sanctuary, the auditorium, and it's big, it's beautiful. It's, you know, you couldn't ask for a better place, but I was a little bit skeptical. How is this going to work? I remember walking in for uh, the first time at one of the rehearsals, and it was so beautifully done. I didn't miss anything. The elements that you expected at the Keller Auditorium in terms of what what went on in the audience and on the platform, it was all there. And so it's just they're wonderful hosts. We felt uh, completely at home, and I think our audience really loved just the um, the feeling of uh, being comfortable at Sunset Presbyterian. So we are so grateful to have the opportunity to be back on our 60th anniversary. That's right. And the other thing that, that our audience really enjoyed last year was it was an intimate yet huge production. Yes. Our, our production, because of the size of the people involved and everything else, was bigger than the room. But the back row of that auditorium is barely halfway up what would be at the Keller Auditorium. There is no first balcony, second balcony, anything like that here. You are, for the same price, actually a little bit less than you would buy a ticket down at the Keller, you are closer and a full view of the spectacular show. Yeah, it's it's incredible. So what can we expect in this 60th anniversary? A quiet, simple performance where people will barely raise their voices in <laughs> a lot of celebration. A lot of reading, <laughs> no singing. A lot of quiet meditation. <laughs> right, right, right. Talking. No, uh, again, you think about 60 years and do people want to come and hear a history lesson of the Portland Singing Christmas Tree? Or do they want to hear incredible singing Songs that we've done 60 years ago and songs that we've never done. Um, so we chose that avenue. We're going to talk a little bit about how, how important it is for the community and for the organization to be around for 60 years. But I also think it's about doing as much music as we can in 90 minutes and entertain and experience this. And, you know, and it's so many other things than just a choir that stands still. Mm-hmm. I mean, it really is a, a production. 
Yeah, it's a Christmas spectacular, and we love that. We love using that word spectacular because it's intended to be a show that uh, ignites all senses, and it, it appeals to the youngest all the way to the oldest uh, and everywhere in between. Uh, I love our home at Sunset Church. It's easy to get to. It's super family-friendly. It's free mm-hmm. parking. But from a show perspective, uh, highlighting some of the best from the past and bringing in some of the brand new um, I'm, I think it's going to be a really special show for everyone. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the star of the show is the Singing Christmas Tree Choir. People want to hear that choir. It's You don't hear choir music very much anymore these days. And to hear it done really well, songs that you love and songs that you're just being introduced to, I think is what draws people uh, to the Singing Christmas Tree and back to the Singing Christmas Tree. But you also feature some soloists. I know former Miss America, Katie Harmon, has been a featured soloist for many years. Timothy Greenwich has been there. Erin Tamlin, uh, she's such a versatile, talented vocalist. Uh, you've got Courtney Temple, who happens to be Timothy Greenwich's daughter, but in her own right, has tremendous talent. And to have that sprinkled in along with the, the kids' choir, and there's some, some great talented kids as well. This is really quite the spectacular, as you described it a moment ago. It is. You know, and I love that we have all elements of classical to uh, contemporary mm-hmm. and even gospel style music within that. And that's where we get a chance to really highlight some of our soloists and our choir. Not only are they the center in the, uh, the center of the show and the, the stars of the show, but their, their voices tied with our, our soloists. I just think it's a way to bring phenomenal styles of music. And like Greg said, all walks of life together around four important things, love, joy, hope, and peace. And how can we bring that, those sentiments and those feelings forward at the kickoff of Christmas for everybody. That's that's really our charge. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you mentioned before that uh, there were six performances scheduled last year. Uh, by popular demand, a seventh was added. This year, there are more opportunities to come and experience the Singing Christmas Tree. How many performances? And let's talk about when they're going to be. So we have nine performances this year. Nine performances. In two weekends. So we open the weekend of Thanksgiving. So Thanksgiving's on a Thursday. We have Friday off where we're going to be in that building all day rehearsing to get ready for our two shows on Saturday and two shows on Sunday. And then we come back the following Thursday, uh, which I think is December 2nd. And Friday, then Friday, December 2nd. Friday, December 2nd for a seven, uh, 7 o'clock show. And then on Saturday... The third, we have a two o'clock and a six o'clock show, and then we close on Sunday, the fourth, with a two o'clock and a seven o'clock, a six o'clock show, then as well. And the auditorium seats about twelve hundred, a little over twelve hundred. And uh, last year, when we decided to add the show because it was going so well, we added the six o'clock show on that Sunday, and it sold out in about three hours. That's just amazing. I remember when it was uh, announced to the choir, we're going to add a show. We all thought, really? Who's going to want to come to a show that's been added relatively late in the run? And sure enough, people came. People came. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the one thing I would like to say is that, you know, we talk about, I talked about plumbers and people who own their own business, that kind of stuff. These are all people that studied singing in high school and college and have always worked on their voice and probably sang at churches when the choirs were really popular at churches or you know, school organizations and that kind of stuff. But those outlets have kind of gone away. So these mm-hmm. aren't just like somebody who's a shower singer, although we do have some of those in the choir. These are people that take what they're doing very seriously. And and the sound repeatedly from audience members walk out and go, I can't believe what I just heard. So I, I, I want to make sure that we talk about how great the show is, but the sound is spectacular. It is spectacular. And it's like something, it's the largest choir in Oregon. 
and it's it's something to behold. Yeah, and they take take their um, their work as you pointed out very seriously. I uh, when I arrive at the first rehearsal that I'm invited to be a part of. It without fail, I have always cried at that first rehearsal because I hear them singing and it's just such a sweet, dynamic sound that I I can't believe these are just the folks that I, you know, I have conversations with in the hall. When they come together, they're serious about their music and it really is a, an amazing offering to our community. People are moved, they're blessed, and they want to come back. Well, and you mentioned too our soloists, but you know, we some once in a while Santa Claus makes an appearance as well. He shows he comes by and we do a kind of a little Santa land sort of thing. So we we make sure we try to hit just as, you know, as much as we can, you know, to celebrate everything that we possibly can on the stage. Well, you're right. It's it's very entertaining. There's something for the kids. There's something for the every member of the audience. There's something that's going to appeal. It's bright. It's colorful. There's lots of movement. The sound is excellent. It's the Portland Singing Christmas Tree, 60th anniversary. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I almost said you're listening to The Singing Christmas Tree, but that's that's not for a little while yet. We are talking about the 60th anniversary of the Portland Singing Christmas Tree that opens its doors to everyone beginning Saturday, November the 26th with two performances, two in the afternoon, six in the evening. Sunday, same thing, two and six. You can go to church, you can have lunch and make your way to the Portland Singing Christmas Tree. Friday night, December the 2nd, at 7 o'clock p.m. We're going to be singing and hope you're there. Saturday, December 3rd, 2 and 6 p.m. performances, as well as Sunday, the final night, December 4th, 2 and 6 o'clock p.m. performances. They have added additional performances, so you are now without excuse. You need to call your family members. You need to call your neighbors. You need to uh, make sure your co-workers are aware, because every year, without fail, somebody will come up to me Usually many somebody's, oh, we're planning on going to the singing Christmas tree. And I have to tell them, I'm sorry, it's done. So make sure you make note of the dates beginning Saturday, November the 26th. Last performance on Sunday, December the 4th. Two opportunities, but last performance. Uh, make sure to mark your calendars and purchase your tickets. Once again, we're back at Sunset Presbyterian Church, but this is going to be a spectacular uh, performance on our 60th anniversary. And you can purchase your tickets right now. A couple of ways to do that. You can call 503-557-8733. If you have questions, you want tickets, maybe you have a group coming, 503-557-8733. You can also uh, send an email to patty at singingchristmastree.org and uh, communicate with her. She's the spectacular ticket seller of all time who's available to answer your questions and to sell you as many tickets as you want. Now, by the way, you know, this makes a great Christmas gift. It's early in the season, but if you want to help family members who perhaps have uh, struggled or just need a kind of a boost to start the holiday season, this is a great gift that you might give to someone else as well. Maybe there's a new member in your neighborhood you'd like to get to know, and this is a great entree into, hi, this is my family. We'd like to invite yours to come and join us for the singing Christmas tree. There are all kinds of excuses, and we'd love for you to find one and purchase many, many tickets to the 60th anniversary of the Portland singing Christmas tree. Now, how do the two of you keep up your enthusiasm? There is so much work that goes into this. Not only once we start um, distributing music, the choir starts rehearsing, you're working with the kids. Months ahead of time, you're selecting music and deciding how things are going to go. 
how do you have the stamina to carry it through to the end in such a joyous and spectacular manner? Go ahead. I think we talked to the choir about this at kickoff is that, you know, you, we can all get together just the choir and everybody and sing and have a great time, but it's truly the audience. It gives you the reason, you know, as you mentioned, some people are coming to the show dealing with work, dealing with life problems, dealing with just getting by, or some of them are coming to celebrate something. We've all, you know, it's fun to see families all dressed the same and come on in. We, we get just as diverse as our, our choir is our audiences as well. And when you do that much work and you plan that far ahead and then you hear the first reaction to the singing and to the end of the first number and people just all of a sudden where people just came from all these different directions, choir included, and everybody comes together in one moment for that 90 minutes that the show is, uh, you walk out and people are randomly, they don't even know who we are, come up and say, thank you. This this really is how we start our holiday season mm-hmm. That is the greatest reward. And I think the tree has also have, have a lot of wonderful sponsors that continue to support us so that we can keep our tickets low. And they send their employees to the show to start their holiday. So, I mean, it, it, the, the re, how you get to the, to the show comes from many different avenues. But once you're there, we're all kind of one. And that yeah. is a celebration together. And I think that's what means the most to all of us. It's true. I always think of um, of that uh, that phrase or that adage: the sum uh, sum is greater than its parts. And when I think of a choir and I think of the Portland Singing Christmas Tree, any individual person is talented in their own right. But when you bring them together in this really incredible magical moment, um, it is so much greater than any one of us uh, individually or even individuals added uh, added up. Greg and I and Timothy Greenidge, we get together in January uh, to start designing and planning the next uh, the next upcoming show. Um, and, you, and when we start thinking about the show in January, by the time it's April, we've locked the show. We're getting music arranged. Um, we're recording tracks for uh, for rehearsals. We're already talking to the band and getting band tracks uh, set. We're doing our kickoff in August. Our rehearsals start in September, and we're off and running. Um, and then as we get to the end of the show, I do have to say the part of the year that I'm always the most let down about is the Monday after our final show. Because yes. there's all of this buildup and excitement and energy and passion that everybody brings to this this uh, this moment in time. That boy, that day after, while we're all very tired, um, it's also one of this one of these things that oh my goodness, I can't wait for next year. Yeah, that was just such an incredible experience. I cannot wait to bring all of these people back together to do it again. Such wonderful memories of of seeing the Portland Singing Christmas Tree, being a part of the Singing Christmas Tree. I, I I'm reminded of when the downbeat from the from the band hits, and you can see the audience. Their posture changes. They are ready to take it all in. The lights change, and the voices of the choir are heard. And everyone in that auditorium knows we are in for something special. And that is precisely what you can expect on this 60th anniversary of the Portland Singing Christmas Tree. 90 minutes of nonstop music, dance, and pageantry that will kick off your holiday season. It will be something you will not forget. Katie Harmon, Timothy Greenidge, Aaron Tamlin, Courtney, uh, Courtney Temple... Uh, the kids choir, the adult choir, so much going on. You're going to have a great time. And as you mentioned, Santa Claus just might. He just might, he might make a show little up. appearance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. He's pretty busy around that time. Yes, but. he is. And we have uh, his head elf, Sparkle, will be back this year. Oh, I love Sparkle. Sparkle will be there to help you know bring in the kids. And there'll be elves. And <laughs> we'll have lots and lots of fun. I also wanted to say one last thing, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned calling Patty or um, emailing her. You can also get to just get your tickets online at singingchristmastree.org. 
Uh, all of our performances are there. You can click on them, pick on your own seats, and and away you go. Excellent. So. I'll make sure I put that on the website as well. Singingchristmastree.org. Well, gentlemen, I am so excited that the season is approaching. The Singing Christmas Tree is preparing, and we're looking forward to lots of our listeners joining us for a celebration and a kickoff of Christmas. Thank you so much for your commitment to serving our community and um, helping to prepare the choir for what will be another spectacular season. Thanks. Thank, thank you, you, Georgine. Well, we're out of time. Thanks so much for listening. I want to thank James Blend for producing, Sam Moppin for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.